Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening. Um, I will try to be quick. Um, so it will be a lot of uh, images. When I was asked to do that lecture, um, I, uh, I mean, it, it was kind of uh, going back to the archives of when did I actually f see first uh, Weiwei, and this is on the ferry, the slim guy on the right side in the jacket, that's me. At that time in 2004, um, that's on a ferry in Basel uh, in 2004. So that was the first encounter preparing for um, uh, like he was, it was a show by uh, Herzog de Meuron, he was part of, and so we got to know each other, and we got invited to, um, to this Genoa project I will show in a minute. Um, just because, uh, famous or not, I guess most of you don't know what um, our office does, and so I show slums slides, um, there is, uh, we do projects in, that's a, a little uh, pilgrim's route in, in Mexico, um, in Berlin, uh, a fashion center uh, along the Spree, uh, apartment buildings like uh, this one in, in Basel. Um, uh, now that's a, a competition, we, are, uh, we won and we are uh, realizing now in Berlin on, um, again, uh, Kudam. Uh, so, we are a classical architecture office, and we got in contact with Ai Weiwei uh, like the year after we founded the office. And in that sense, Weiwei was our biggest uh, donor, our biggest, uh, like, uh, we owe him a lot. So, I'm totally not critical about his work, uh, and I guess that's why he wanted me to come here. So. This is the first. This is the first piece of Weiwei I have seen as a, like not only <coughs> chairs and, and furniture, um, and this was uh, in 2004, uh, the main memorial to his father, um, along the river whose name I forgot, um, in uh, Genoa, um, where he was uh, like putting together a list of or. Uh, I think it was a mix. It was all his friends he had in the architecture world who put down the list with young firms that could be interesting to do something almost for free and would fly over and do something with enthusiasm. And we were one of these um, of these architects. You can see uh, a lot of people totally foreign in China. It was the first time in China and it was, uh, first of all, an experience of, um, of getting to know a country and to somehow develop first prejudices. So this was the first architectural piece I have seen then of uh, Ai or he realized there, um, I think, a very fascinating um, uh, object, which is the museum to pottery, if I have it in, in mind. Um, and I think what is interesting about it is that it's not so published. I don't know how many of you know it, but I think it shows one side of his work, um, which is interesting. I'm not a very good photographer, but you can understand it. It's, it's, um, that's one side. So this uh, hexagon, which is sunk in the ground, is just perceived as a normal, ordinary box, as a building. And from the other side, it's a pretty refined 
structure where you can go in and then you see there is a second layer, there is a, a, um, a pretty complex spatial world, uh, world underneath. So um, he, the, the setting of this Genoa project was done in a way that everyone flew in, showed, uh, like got to know what he has to do, went home, designed the project and came back. So um, I will not, the, our, our object here is called uh, Mini Structure for Children's and uh, it's kind of a playground for children. I show it like that because it's the beginning of a, it was the beginning of a friendship and because Ai Weiwei liked this, uh, our pavilion so much, his assistant called some months later and said, would you like to do a project with Ai Weiwei? Of course, he was not so famous then, I mean, 2005, I don't know. Um, but uh, he uh, was just already then, when, when we met him, it, it's just an incredible guy and an incredibly clear mind. So, of course, we said, yes, we take the next flight. And we went to China to um, collaborate on the building I show now. It's somehow chopped out the titles here. Here would be written uh, that's a collaboration with Ai Weiwei. So that's uh, uh, called a treehouse. Um, and um, I showed you before that building with this hexagon structure in uh, the Pottery Museum. And this is a building which has a pentagon structure in the ground floor. And out of this pentagon structure develops a spatial concept which is like leaves of a tree where you never have a continuous uh, surface, but you always have uh, like light coming inside the building through um, irregular shapes. So this building was um, uh, done until that stage. Then we got the fight with the client, and it never continued. Uh, so it's uh, it's unfinished. It's uh, it's uh, yeah a sad story on one hand, but the good thing was that Weiwei was so uh, upset with the client and so felt so bad that he said, "Oh, I owe you another building. We do something else." No. So in the end, out of that doing a project and which we liked, but which was sad as a story, it got uh, an opportunity. Um, to do other things. So this is a project we also did together in the United States, in uh, upstate New York. It's a very simple project. Again, a different way to design, uh, no design. It is a client who said, I, uh, um, I organized you another client, so I would like to have something for free. And then we said, no, of course, <laughs> you don't get, if, if it's for free or almost for free, then we do not design anything. So it was a sidetrack. While we were designing a project with Weiwei, which I will show in a minute, this one happened on the side, only like a big plot, only um, that's, I think, the one drawing we did. Uh, using a structure which is used for, uh, that's the drawings by the, the firm who, who did it. Um, something was, is messed up with the images, but you understand. To create three, three sheds, one after the other, um, with, uh, to, for a collector and, and dealer of art. He's also in that 
it's a Chambers fine, fine, Chambers fine Art in, in the Red Brick Building, which is in the exhibition. Um, that's the building which was the first one. I mean, this like second, the, the building to compensate that the treehouse was not built uh, was this one. So this was also for a collector in um, New York. Um, he wanted to have a big house on a, again, a big plot. He then wanted to have a guest house. So I will not continue. This is a, a zodiac's inside. So it's in this in this world of um, of uh, uh, art collectors who want something special, who would ask uh, Ai Weiwei if he could do something. And maybe afterwards we will talk about this kind of uh, different ways to do architecture. Um, he has an office to do these brick buildings, like in-house, and he has not really an office to do that kind of more special other projects. So um, then he would ask us, and then uh, we would uh, imagine <laughs> something together and, and develop it. So I wanted to finish with three like observations, maybe with little stories, um, uh, why I think uh, I'm interested in him as a colleague, you know, as an architect, you know, if we put these brands. And <clears throat> I think for me one of the most important um, uh, attitudes or qualities of his is that he has this relaxed, deep interest in how people live. So he would not just be interested in shape or not just uh, um, uh, uh, want to like put his mark, but he always thinks about, but how would that function and would someone feel okay? And I think even more in architecture than he does in the art, uh, in the art context. So this is images where uh, we, like Shanghai, where uh, uh, we strolled around and uh, went through buildings that were to be demolished and, and it's, on one hand, that's, that's the places where he takes uh, material to use it then uh, as old bricks or uh, old doors in, in uh, other works. Um, but it's also just the interest in, um, in uh, something which is disappearing, whether someone wants it or not. I also think what is important to say is that at that time, he was pretty relaxed about this whole and he thought it's very funny, this whole communist um, culture of China in a very nice way, no? I mean, it's, we went to this buffet and he touched an egg and then an old guy came and said, don't touch with the hand, so, and like, like a schoolboy and so. But um, uh, he chose that hotel and uh, out of an interest into like the, how did my, my father or how did old people like live and not just looking at the very old stuff or at the very contemporary. Um, and I think relaxed also in that, if I talk about this relaxed, uh, being relaxed, uh, that's this uh, red brick building uh, in Cao uh, Changdi. Um, this is a copy of it in uh, Ordos uh, where we met in Mongolia. Um, the client of, Mongol of this Mongolian project uh, asked Weiwei if he could do a building 
in Mongolia and where we said, I have no time, I have nothing. They said, can I not just have uh, plans of something you already did? So he gave him the plans of the, of the red building. And then um, where we was very, thought it's very funny that this guy uh, had the ambition to build that faster than the red one. He wanted to finish because the logic of this Tsai, the, 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 the client, was if mine is, uh, if I finished earlier, mine is the original and the, uh, the other one is, is the copy. No. So, so, and he just lets that happen because he thinks this is, this is a, a funny uh, moment. No. Then, um, I think uh, Weiwei is so good uh, in architecture because he is very quick, because he's very clear. He sees, uh, that's a, a detail of this um, um, uh, the Three Shadows uh, photo uh, gallery, and uh, he once told me this wall, he saw that that's a traditional way to stock pile uh, bricks before then they would be put um, uh, as, as real walls, no? And to see something like that and to say, oh yes, next project, that will be my wall, no? Just like, take it, use it, because it has a incredible quality as, a, as an object. I think that's very quick. Or here, once he explained that, uh, I asked, but why, what's the proportions here? And so he said, yeah, this is, it's just important that this is much higher. First it was only like this, and then he wanted it to be a real difference. So he works a lot with, or it's big, or it's small, or it's large, or it's short, and like not slight differences in architecture. I think that's very successful as a, as a way to deal with the project he deals with. He's also very, like when we collaborate, uh, sometimes it's just, um, uh, five minutes, and then the change from that's a sketch from uh, these these uh, three cabins of uh, art farm, and then uh, like a certain point we say, in the end it's not so important who says what, but you have a sketch and you have a talk, and then okay maybe it's much better like that, okay, and then the meeting is over. Um, and the, the idea is clear, and maybe because it's over, it cannot get worse anymore. So then, um, uh, that's another building, I think, which is interesting. It's also in, uh, outside of, uh, uh, not in Cao Changdi, but, but a little bit more outside, uh, 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 a kind of atelier building. He was doing just shortly before then, he was, he was taken in, and um, uh, in, in Cassidy, and I don't know how it's used today, but what I think is beautiful here is these um, like simple volumes. He needed big spaces, um, so he did two big spaces. Then there is a wall, but this wall does not touch. No, this wall then goes just through. So each element has its own logic and is just set next to it in a way that they don't hurt each other. And I think this is. Um, um, comes from this, uh, these quick decisions uh, which make you not think too much about how to relate one thing to the other, but how to uh, accept each element as it is. That's another just funny example. We did a trip through uh, 
through the south of China, and then we were going up a mountain and saw this beautiful street. And then um, I said, oh, that's beautiful street. And then we had a project that was, that's the location of this tree house. And then we said, hey, let's do that street. No, so him uh, together. No, so this is now just the street, like a copy of that street uh, we saw two days before we did the design. So it's, um, it's uh, again, I think it's a very good street and you have to have a full brain of references, but you also have to be willing to just take these quick, clear decisions to say, that's it, and then it's good now for the, for the, for the project. And then, um, as a last thing, I wanted to say that, I mean, with all these images of showing the middle finger and so, our way from far could seem like someone who has a very strong fuck-off attitude and the cool guy, but he's not. I mean, he's really not, and he cares about the soap so that it's not wasted, and he cares about many different things. And um, here I just cut out the, so you don't look at the, the wife. He once told me that he was, because I'm, I'm in London now, uh, at that time still, Sir, um, now Lord Foster. He wait, once told me that he was so proud because Norman Foster came to his office, this is his office, and that's the, the coroner in the, in the very end. And uh, Foster told him, if I look how you solve this angle, because the wall goes behind the building, like. 30 centimeters and then comes back and everything is dissolved, then I know you are an architect. And for Weiwei, this was really, this meant a lot to him, that Foster would tell, you are an architect. So I think this is also something, this humble, to be humble and to not say, yes, I know I'm good, so, but that these compliments mean a lot to him. Thank you. You set me up very nicely because um, I'm beginning exactly where you left off with the house. Um, and I'm the non-architect of the panel, so it's, I guess, my job to sort of draw some connections between uh, Weiwei's role as an architect and all of the other things, and his role as an artist or his, all of the other things that he does. And um, this is not very difficult because for him, there's basically no difference. Um, I always say that you know his two great influences during his New York period were Duchamp and Warhol, and from Duchamp he took the idea that anything can be art. From Warhol he took the idea that everything he does is art. Um, and these have manifested themselves and matured as his uh, art making has continued over these last few decades. This is a model uh, that I was struck by a few years ago in an exhibition that uh, the new or soon to be museum in Hong Kong, M Plus, uh, which does not yet exist as a building, um, but does as a collection, uh, put together uh, of their architectural holdings. And it's it's a model that Weiwei made of this studio home that he built for himself in 1998-1999, uh, and that definitively marks his uh, first foray as an architect. Um, it came from a very specific place. He had come back from uh, New York and had basically been living with his mother for six years, and at a certain point that got a bit old. Um, and this particular intervention, I mean, had a lot to do with for example, uh, the way land is used and the way land is zoned in a place like Beijing today, uh, which which Daniel explores in his catalog essay. But um, needless to say, um, 
different kinds of space are regulated in different ways. And a village like Tao Changdi is interesting because it's essentially uh, a rural core whose fields have been um, eaten up by other kinds of development or by, for example, the Fifth Ring Road, which runs just beyond it. Um, and yet certain kind of modalities of an earlier form of governance uh, remain. So unlike in a more urban part of the city, uh, in Cao Changdi, there still is a functioning village council. Uh, and villagers are essentially looped into uh, the sort of upside of all the rent that is now charged you know, in this area that's developed since then. Um, he's very much of this place, which, which has become, of course, for him, uh, by him, a, 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 such a world-renowned creative cluster. Um, but it's, it's always interesting, the kind of back and forth between um, the international and the extremely local that happens in this kind of a space. Um, I wanted to talk, I, I just, I don't know, I started with this model just because I think it's as much an architectural model as it is an art object. I mean, I really find it one of the most, it's not the best picture, but um, I remember being confronted with it and having really, you know, a house I visited so many times, uh, having to really look for quite a while before um, it made itself apparent as uh, a depiction of a, a built reality. Of course, that's the, the dining room window, as people who've been there know. Um, but um, you know, you cut off the proportions of the landscape, and it suddenly becomes um, an object in its own right. And um, it's funny when we talk about Iowa as an architect to go back to the moment of 2007, which for me is kind of the cusp of his international ascendance. Um, and this was an image we commissioned for this um, uh, prof profile I wrote from of him in art form in the summer 07 issue, um, which was the sculpture he realized for Documenta that year. And which, of course, um, only a few days after being erected in front of the Awa Pavilion as sort of the central piece in this exhibition that happens once every five years, uh, a storm came along and blew it over. Um, to many people, sort of calling into question his proficiency as a maker of uh, durable structures. Um, but of course, um, for Weiwei, uh, collapse is is creation or. Um, this was also true for Mao, who had a famous maxim, Bupo Buli, uh, if it hasn't torn down, nothing new can be built up. And Weiwei, of course, uh, in his spirit, turned this into an opportunity for another kind of art making. And this is actually the piece then reinstalled at the Haus der Kunst uh, two years later in 2009, and actually reconstructed uh, at the behest of many engineers who figured out exactly how it had fallen to replicate uh, this unintentional destruction. Um, in a way connected to something like what Duchamp did when he jumped three meter long strings uh, and, and sort of made rulers from the incidental patterns in which they had fallen. Um, I want to talk briefly about modularity because uh, you know a lot of analysis about Weiwei's art comes back to this <coughs> idea of a kind of sculptural debt to minimalism. And I have to say, for me, the most stunning room in the whole show here is the one in which there are actually four cubes present of completely different materials, but each of an exact cubic uh, meter volume. And it was really great talking to Tim the other day and learning that actually the placement is determined by the architecture of Burlington House because the uh, crystal cube is so heavy that it needs to sit on a beam. And so the other four are determined in relation. And that's actually interesting in the context of these um, volumes. Now, of course, this is sacred seen in a church, which I actually found 
really offensive as someone raised Catholic just to have like the passion of Ai Weiwei, um, you know, sort of alongside the Stations of the Cross, but that was a kind of residual offense, let's say, and I think it actually looks much better here. Um, but, you know, look at that in comparison to something like this, uh, 104, which is one of the, I think it's 104, I can't remember the address, I've been, um, but one of the uh, sort of gallery districts that he's now built, um, or built already 10 years ago, on the outskirts of Taochengdi, and how these repeated forms um, work in relation to each other, how uh, seriality uh, serves to accentuate certain features, um, but also how a kind of um, homogenized space is created and how, in fact, architecture uh, as sculpture on a smaller scale um, does becomes a tool by which land is claimed and space is delineated and uh, a zone of, of control is established. And I, this actually hints at something that I think is really important when we talk about Weiwei, um, if we want to do that in a complex manner, is to understand that <coughs> 10 years before, or not 10 years, but seven years before a piece like this, which uh, I think is also present in the exhibition, you know, a marble um, sculpture of a surveillance camera like those many that are trained on his house, um, lest we see him, you know, always as a kind of innocent victim of uh, the totalitarian Leviathan. Um, let's look at this, a very unknown work of his, but this, I have a very uh, special fondness for this work because it's from exactly the moment when I moved back to Beijing in 2006. And <clears throat> just a few days later, uh, the Museum of Modern Art arrived with three busloads full of its international council, um, who are its, it's not the board of trustees, but it's a very high-ranking patronage group, and it's typically the one that's been accessible to people from outside the New York uh, social hierarchy. Um, so you had this you had 80 or 90 people, many of them very old, they go on a big trip every year. Um, and they're sort of, I, I was, well, this is not relevant, but I was tasked with sort of getting them into like the bird's nest and all of these architectural sites that required all kinds of interesting um, manipulations. But um, the, in a way, the most interesting visit of all was theirs to Ai Weiwei's house, where actually, unbeknownst to them, he had installed a series of surveillance cameras and made this really kind of wonderful video in which MoMA comes to visit his studio, um, which, was, which was actually enunciative of a whole other sort of turning point in the, in the world of Chinese art, because the uh, vigor with which this visit had been awaited was matched only by uh, the kind of anticlimax that it ended up representing. And what gets left is this kind of absurdist procession uh, where you have notables, you know, sort of, but here caught from inside the grate underneath a shelf on which some of his dipped pots are, um, are, are shown. So in other words, I mean, and this is certainly after the detention and after certain incidents that have happened in the wake of that, um, it is interesting how certain tactics that he employs actually start to mirror um, those which have been employed uh, onto him by, by the state with which he's working. Um, brings us to this, um, and now, I mean, I think people have seen these sculptures at exactly half of life scale. I mean, they're somewhere, again, between art and architecture, um, uh, giving visual form to an experience that no one can have a direct uh, image of because, of course, there are no photographs. Um, and none of us, hopefully, know what it's like in one of these detention facilities. Um, makes me think of nothing so much as this, which is the, the setup that he created in 2007 for Documenta, the fairy tale project in which he 
brought uh, a thousand and one Chinese, ordinary Chinese, um, who had been collected, you know, using his blog and a kind of um, very proleptic moment about social media at a time when Twitter hadn't actually even hit saturation point yet. He certainly wasn't on it. Um, but, you know, he did this, he attempted this project of bringing these people to the middle of Westphalia um, with a couple of ideas, you know, one of which was taking ordinary folks out of who might never have a chance to travel abroad and putting them um, into a completely other environment and seeing what would happen uh, among them and to them. Um, another part of that idea um, was kind of enacting this sort of fantasy of a sort of yellow peril moment of, you know, uh, the arrival of a kind of otherness um, that, of course, uh, reverberated with other moments in Germany's history and particularly, you know, in the history of Documenta as a kind of post-war um, coping mechanism. Um, but actually what, hap what it is as well is a kind of alternative detention facility, shall we? I mean, people are there um, of their own accord, but, you know, you're creating a kind of um, shared sociality uh, based on uh, a kind of identical experience. Um, now, I mean, another really interesting thing to think about when we think about architecture is always labor. And I, I think here Weiwei's work has been really exemplary. Um, everyone knows what this is, but you know, what people sort of sometimes don't um, remember about the Sunflower Seeds piece is that it's actually the same piece as dropping a Han Dynasty urn. Um, and dropping a Han Dynasty urn was a way of calling attention to the kind of cultural destruction that was being done all around him. Um, this urn is the sort of cenotaph that stands in for all the other urns who are, uh, who no one notices when they're destroyed. Um, in the same way, I mean, 100 million sunflower seeds, if you've seen the documentary footage of the, the conditions in which they were produced, which are similar to the conditions in which everything that's produced in Jingdezhen are produced, um, what you actually have is this kind of meta-commentary on uh, subjectivity and on how, how lives are basically uh, instrumentalized and devoted entirely to um, the production of completely meaningless objects, which here they are, are goods. But that was something, that I think that was actually something that as a humanist he felt extremely deeply. And I remember in 2005 going to his, his studio and him saying, can you believe all these kids who are coming to work uh, in my architecture studio on these Vespas that they, you know, these electric battery Vespas that they get for about, you know, 200 pounds. Think of all the people that are basically enslaved to make them. Um, so in other words, his labor concerns, I think, are actually always at the forefront of a lot of his architectural thinking, and I think Simon referred to that a little bit too. Um, and I think that one thing that this makes him interested in aesthetically is kind of, a, a, let's call it a sort of absurdist aesthetics of, uh, of class difference or of, um, or kind of collapsing of vastly different taste arguments. And, and, and in China, class is always also entwined with um, with politics and particularly with the, the party system. Um, the, the, the chandelier, uh, it's actually very funny because he went on to become known as an artist who made chandeliers and New York dealers like Mary Boone would sort of commission these shows of his that were just lots of crystal. Um, I think the best example of all was when they re renovated the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami they actually commissioned three chandeliers that actually ended up just being hotel lobby chandeliers. Um, this was actually a ready-made, and the idea was that you know he was going to make a chandelier 
as big as, uh, produced by the same company as um, the people who drew the chandeliers for the Great Hall of the People. And not only that, the original proposal, and this is how it's displayed at the first Guangzhou Triennial, which was a, a radically important exhibition in 2002, the first time that a lot of the art of the 90s was allowed into the state uh, museum system. Um, his first proposal was actually to make a chandelier and hang it in the director's office where no one would actually see it, and in the car park. Um, that was thankfully turned down. And instead, he, he situated it inside of this uh, most ordinary uh, construction sort of scaffold. Um, so kind of drawing these two systems into high relief. Um, and I guess that just brings us to here, I mean, of course. Um, and, and even to the vein of his creation, which maybe doesn't refer directly to China, that is something else that kind of offers other aesthetic possibilities. And I, I think the trees are kind of wonderful for that. And I was really um, excited to see actually Daniel's essay uh, the translation of his father's poem about trees, which I hadn't been aware of, but which actually makes perfect sense in the context of what these pieces are. Um, the uncanny, uh, the sort of, the re-naturalized, you know, it even fits into lots of our sort of object-driven debates these days. Um, but I think that, you know, of course that comes from this earlier piece, which was the center of the Hauster Kunst show in uh, 2009, which is incidentally the only show that even remotely competes with this show in terms of being a good show, a great show of Weiwei's work. Um, and what you're not probably noticing is that all of these roots, um, which haven't yet been processed, this is the piece that kind of drove him to start thinking about how to process them, are actually situated on top of a massive carpet, which is identically uh, proportion to this floor at the center of this building, the Haus der Kunst, which of course built by Hitler for the Grosse Deutsche Kunstausstellung in the late 30s, um, which has seen no no shortness, shortage of <laughs> different regimes of uh, historical tragedy. Um, and what Weiwei actually did was commission his team to digitally photograph every one of these giant tiles on the floor and then commission a Beijing uh, carpet factory to produce an exact replica. And this carpet, which you know softens this entire space to the point where you can sort of erect an entire forest atop it, does a couple of things at once. Um, one of them is it it mutes and it dims and it you know sort of tones down, but it actually also obscures entirely. It covers over the actually existing thing with a simulacrum of the thing that we're told is identical to the thing, but of course, especially at the center, we have no way of checking. Um, and, you know, this is the same strategy he employs in the dipped pots, where he's famously said, or not so famously said, but I think very uh, intelligently said, that these pots are essentially a metaphor for China today. Um, in that, you know, and, and what you need to understand, I mean, if, if you're Chinese, you do, um, but if you haven't spent a lot of time there, maybe you don't, is just the absolute absurdity of the fact that the communists won in the first place, and then the fact that you know, consciousness has been so utterly transformed um, in these last 70 years uh, to a place that is, could never have been anticipated and also to a point where it's now actually much more in step with certain contemporary ideas than anywhere else in the world. Um, but the painted pots, and I'm sorry I don't have an uh, image to end with, but there was a really kind of disgustingly big one in the middle of the uh, collector's barn that Simon showed us. They're better in smaller and multiples. Um, are great because the form of the vessel remains, but is destroyed and covered um, by the paint. And the paint doesn't belong there, but is the reality. 
Um, and I think that's maybe just a place to stop right now because it's, um, you know, what we're basically talking about is aesthetic concepts that play out across his art and architecture, across his politics and advocacy, um, across now, and I can't wait to see the memoir, his writing um, and, and the way that he lives his life. So there you go. Thanks. Um, I just actually wanted to add to the story about the copy of the building because the other interesting thing that happened in that building was that they, it was, a drawn, it was drawn on trace and when they copied it, they copied it upside down. So it's a building that's also backwards, <laughs> which I Weiwei thought was extremely amusing. So um, this is a, a 2007 piece called To Fight With Crossed Arms. Um, and it's composed of four photographs, which are called to hold a brick, to show a brick, to throw a brick, and to put a brick on the head. And those represent Ai Weiwei's diverse activities as an architect, a curator, a critic, and an artist. And I guess what's interesting is that the common factor is the brick. So, as I mentioned at the beginning of the essay that I wrote for the accompanying exhibition, um, my first experience with, of Ai Weiwei was not actually his art. I, the first London show was a few months after we'd uh, gone to, uh, to China for the Orders project. So it was, it was actually with his architecture and the buildings in uh, Chao Di. Uh, which is this village on the outskirts of Beijing. And I think what was fascinating for me was um, th 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 this quiet and, and kind of emphatic material presence of these, these kind of amazing sculpted uh, elemental volumes and spaces. And, uh, and they were distinct from their village context, but they were also absolutely knitted into it. Um, and really simply constructed using uh, local brick and concrete frame. And they offered this really intensely physical bodily experience. And I suppose coming out of that, for me, this sense of the material is something that um, seems to continue to define his most <laughs> compelling work. And yet the public and critical discourse that surrounds Ai Weiwei has become increasingly fascinated by him as a personality, as a polymath, as a polemicist. And, and so the thing that I want to talk to about today is in particular that idea of material culture, but also about the buildings, focused on the buildings that he made in, um, in the village in uh, Chachangdi. To Fight With Crossed Arms takes its title from a Duchampian phrase, and it has this marked similarity with the 1995 piece that first brought him real notoriety, dropping uh, Hand in the Urn. Um, that Phillips talked about. And uh, I think what's interesting is that I's willing to break in order to make a point. So in the, in the dark humour of these startlingly wanton yet deliberate actions, he draws attention to the countless other pieces that have been uh, lost from China's heritage during both the Cultural Revolution, when they were trying to supplant the past, but then also since, when that's just become replaced by a kind of laissez-faire acquisitiveness, this kind of um, strange relationship to neoliberalism. This piece is called Souvenir from Shanghai, and it's a grey brick, the typical brick that the, the city of the Hutongs, was, which have increasingly disappeared, were made of. And uh, it's in an ironwood box 
which is made of some timber salvaged from uh, a Queen Dynasty temple. And I guess what it reminds us of is that, you know, alongside the priceless artifacts, what's really being lost in this, um, you know, huge transformation, urban transformation, is the, is the fabric of the historic city, both individual houses, whole Hutong communities, um, the temples that supported those communities and brought them together, and of course, in many ways, the communities themselves. And um, I, I spent, through a series of photographic and video pieces, he spent uh, quite a long time uh, carefully setting up systems by which to catch moments in this process of change. Uh, this is uh, a film called Beijing 2003, where he split the city up into sectors and drove around them systematically. This is another one called Chang'an Boulevard, where he drove across the main boulevard, stopping, I think, every 100 metres to take a photograph. Um, and then this is a, 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 an incredible series of photographs called uh, Provisional Landscapes, where he's recording these kind of moments of, of destruction. And I think what interests me about these works, rather like his built works, are their impassive nature. He leaves space in them for us to think about the loss of the things that we see and what it must be like to be in these situations confronted by these moments of destruction. And I suppose what's also interesting is that they sort of in some uncanny way prefigure the destruction of his own building in uh, Shanghai. So this is the building that he was asked to make by the Shanghai government um, in order to um, rethink their uh, cultural development of their city and then as soon as he built it they demolished it. Um, in his gallery pieces, Wei Wei has um, worked a lot with ironwood, uh, the ironwood that he salvaged from temples across China in order to talk about this idea of, of loss of, of the kind of urban condition and the social condition that goes with it. This is a piece called Kipper, I think you, you pronounce it, which is uh, upstairs, which quantifies this loss through this uh, stack of timber from, I, ca I can't remember how many, 360 temples or something. Um, and then this uh, amazing monumental piece called uh, Fragments spatializes it. And, and I think what's interesting about both of these pieces that um, Weiwei's working with very skilled craftsmen and really keeping hold of traditional uh, uh, timber craft techniques. So the, the joints, uh, these are all jointed using traditional techniques and they're held within this balance of delicate balance between destruction and, and transformation and a kind of reconstruction. And, and, and at another scale he also works um, with pieces of furniture. This is a piece called Table with Two Legs Against the Wall which started as a real table that's then again incredibly skillfully if you go and look at these upstairs they're, they're, they're made with as much care as the originals but somehow they're transformed into he, he talks about um, uh, the, being fascinated by this notion of spending so much time and care on making something without purpose um, but what they remind me of are these prop pieces by uh, Richard Serra um, and they, in many ways, what's interesting about them is that by making them um, uh, sort of structures of dependency, they're dependent on the space of the gallery, they're just dependent on their specific situation within the room, that they find a new place, having lost their place. 
Um, so if Ironwood's the material with which he's thought about um, a lot of his gallery work and, and talked about this, this idea of urban loss uh, within the gallery, then the, the brick architecture that he's made goes further in both um, you know, kind of make, making a new structure, a new social structure and an urban structure and in offering uh, the beginning of a kind of resistance to it. And that started in 1999 with his own studio um, and from that studio and its critical success, he was asked to build a whole series of buildings. Ah, oh, that's an interesting... This is when Macs meet PCs. Um, that was a plan of, the, of Chao Chang Dai and showing his various, um, his various buildings before it got steamrolled by some massive communist... Um, insurgent development so and now, and now I don't know what it is anymore but anyway um, uh, and what's interesting about those works this is a plan of a traditional hutong um, is that they, they seem in some ways introverted but but in many ways what they are are they're recalling these kind of deep spaces of thresholds that you find within these traditional hutong houses um, and you can see from the kind of surrounding roofs on this this drawing the kind of density of these developments, these kind of introverted houses looking one onto another. So Ai Weiwei's really um, in a very different way from the way he's uh, worked with craftsmen on the, on the timber gallery pieces. He's adopted the brick and adapted it and refined what are basically the contingent expedient local construction techniques that he found in his village. So this is, this is local builders building his own um, building his own studio in 1999. Um, so this is, this is his studio space and living space. Not in, in, in reality, there's a big table that sits here that he, he works at. And, and these, this building has formed the kind of basis for a whole series of buildings that he's made in Chao Changdi. And I, I guess, again, to refer to something that Philip talked about, what's interesting for me is that these pieces become more compelling because they are serial, because they refer to one another as well as to the place that they're in. And they all work with this um, very simple idea, or, or, they, or they start from this simple idea of the wrapping grey Beijing exterior brick and then the red interior brick held within a, an exposed structural concrete frame. This is um, Chao Changdi 241. And this in a way also subsumes that idea of seriality within itself. So this is 19 um, versions of uh, Weiwei's own studio, uh, sometimes as squares, sometimes as uh, L-shaped buildings. Um, and in some way, perhaps inadvertently, these recall this uh, kind of this, this idea of minimalism and, and, and I think a kind of unconscious or maybe conscious debt to that. So you can see in the, in the ton of tea piece, the ton of ebony, the, uh, the, the meter of ebony and the crystal piece upstairs, this debt to uh, people like Donald Judd, these four galvanized steel cubes, or uh, Sol Lewitt. And I think like them, um, it, his architecture succeeds in being simultaneously about object space and experience. Um, what's also interesting about many of the pieces is that they negotiate the, these kind of um, the, these interior worlds 
with the contingent geometries of the village in which they sit. So this is uh, Courtyard 104, which has this um, sort of triangulated interior as a result of the awkward plot it finds itself on. And these forms and volumes uh, create these really interesting spatial tensions um, in, in this strange tapering alley, which is just to do with, the, with trying to provide the most efficient uh, large interior spaces for gallery use uh, within the kind of contingencies of the, of, the piece that, of the space that he's found. What's also interesting here is this, the next variant on the use of the brick. So here he mixes the red brick and the grey brick because there was a shortage of bricks in Chaochangdi at the time. And his instructions were to the bricklayers were simply to lay them at a ratio of two to one. He didn't tell them how to do that, he just left them to make their own patterns. And similarly on the outer wall he cuts out a third of the bricks and says, you decide how to, how to make that work. So this kind of dialogue that he's in with the craftsmen, although they're very different kinds of craftsmen to the ones that he's working with the timber pieces, he's using very similar techniques. Um, this is the red brick galleries. And here, the outer gray skin disappears altogether, this kind of idea of brick as a kind of continuous wrap. And you're left with the exposed tectonic of the concrete frame and the red brick interior, which has become an exterior. And what's interesting here is that he, for me, is that he's getting back to the kind of absolute fundamentals of what architectural, uh, the architectural tectonic is. Um, the critic Kenneth Frampton talks about the, the idea of the tectonic frame which here is represented by the concrete as something that holds a kind of spatial field. And then, and then that within that, you feel the stereotomic uh, mass with things that you pile on top of each other. But he's talking about Greek architecture when he's talking about that. And so, so this, this is very, for me, very interesting fundamental work, which is getting back to those, those absolute concerns about, about, uh, <coughs> about construction and space making. And I, I guess the other thing that comes out of that is the idea that the brick, um, he's using the brick as the, in the same way as he talks about the sunflower seed as the kind of, as the individual piece. Each brick is different, but it's also part of a multitude. Um, and it allows him to build, through this kind of humble yet sensuous material, it allows him to build this strong relationship, um, an empathetic relationship with the people uh, with whom he's making and the people he relies on to make. Um, and I guess the other thing that interests me about the brick is uh, the is, it, is in a way the brick itself. You know, it, it's a humble thing, but it's also the uh, it, it's a, it's something that's made of earth, fire, water, and air. It's absolutely kind of fundamental building material. It's the smallest building material that you can work with. It's something you can hold in your hand. You know, and you stack them one on top of another, and you keep doing that, and eventually you make a wall. So, so it, it, it's a, an absolutely fundamental material. And you know that relationship to bricks. If you think about someone like Carl Andre, these equivalence pieces. I mean, what's interesting about these, rather like Weiwei's buildings, is that in their name, equivalence, they not only um, they're, they're a stack of bricks, but they're also equivalent to something else, and so they're part of a series. You can only really understand the Andre pieces when, when you think about them all. Um, and I guess there are other people, uh, other artists who are, have been interested in brick, you know, people like 
This is the Danish artist Per Kerkebu, who made these brick sculptures. Um, and these are an interesting set of sculptural pavilions by uh, a German sculptor called Erwin Herwig um, in the uh, museum in Solhombroek, uh, which is near Dusseldorf. But I guess, uh, and, and, and obviously they share lots of qualities with Weiwei's buildings. Um, but what seems different to me about Weiwei's buildings in the village to these, I mean, Weiwei's clearly interested in this idea of the archetypal form um, and its relationship to a kind of sensuous material. This is a thing called tea house. Um, and this is the archaeological archive that, um, that uh, we were talking about earlier. Um, this kind of very simple archetypal forms. And, and in some ways you can see the relationship to Herwick's um, kind of repeated gables of his barn in, in um, the Shanghai building. But in uh, the buildings of the village, I think what, what in a way allows them to transcend this uh, idea of a kind of sculptural form is that they are in constant negotiation both with a community and with this kind of contingent uh, place that they find. So, 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 it, so that they, they, they stop being formal and they become spatial and experiential. Um, and I think in summary, the thing that interests me, this is the big table uh, in, in his house. And you know, what interests me about Weiwei is that um, for all the polemic, within his architecture, what he has done is to, he talks about quietness, and he talks about ordinariness, and it's a very, and they're very humane, I mean they're very strong, powerful pieces of work, but they're also, they, they feel when you're in them, very humane, and about the scale of the body and how the body moves through them, and how as individuals and collectively we might occupy them. And that, in the context of the kind of enormous urban change that China's going through, feels like a small but very significant um, act of resistance. Thank you. I wanted to go back, maybe just fill in a couple of little moments within kind of thinking about his work. And, um, I mean, Daniel, you referred here to his reference to a very, an archetypal form. But I was wondering whether we could maybe reflect upon or I could hear a little bit from you about where you think he gained, and I, I mean this in a very loose sense, an education. You know, he, it sounds as though, well, conversations I've had, he, <coughs> conversations with people, people like yourselves, I think part of the idea of a project like Ordos was to bring architects together to talk and to have a critical discussion. Um, do you think, do you have that sense? And he cites quite often the conversations he had with Herzog de Muren. And I'm wondering how you think he's evolved his architectural thinking, whether it's independent, whether it's looking at people, whether it's, as you say, life. All of it, I hope. I mean, um, if you mention Herzog de Muren, and I, I, I mean, these, these uh, walls with the, I just said to the guy, put three bricks and so I mean no they're all drawn I mean this is then maybe a question of attitude again in the studio you have the these these walls are drawn and these uh, like interns then the, like develop this pattern of where to put what brick and so I think maybe it's it's the, it's, uh, the most normal thing but of course, we, you mentioned Donald Judd. Of course, he owes a lot to Donald Judd as an architect. No? Of course, he owes a lot to Herzog de Meuron as an architect. 
of holes of course he owes a lot to other artists as artists so and I think that um, one day he would say I don't even know Donald Judd no and another day he would say of course no. so but this is not I think that's not an important point I don't think that for anyone in that field this is an important point no I mean I think it's a good question but I, I don't think that the, that the, the, his answer is also pretty clear that no he did not go to school I mean he went to school and then walked away and but I think it's one part of the story of his narrative that he streetwise yeah. and he picked it up and that's part of uh, also Ai Weiwei as a, a machine to sell but you, you meant I mean just to go back to the Ordos thing I mean it was in, interesting looking at the relationship between um, the documenta piece and the and the thousand and one you know the fairy tale piece I mean I I asked Weiwei when we were in Ordos and we were all sitting in some hotel feeling like in the middle of the desert feeling like like you know in a way why are we here and I and I asked him and I said you know like are we just being projected on the wall of a Chelsea hotel are we are we a hundred architects being the thousand peasants and um, and he said no he said actually what's interesting about this project is not the architecture because that's not what I'm particularly interested in it's about you talking to each other it's about building a network of discussion and connection and debate um, so in some ways I think I, I mean I, I think some of the things you say are probably right that that what he in my very limited re relationship with him what he what he really seemed to value was this idea of discursiveness of dialogue mm. and that, and that that's a kind of process of accretive learning you know yeah I mean I think it's interesting in the context of that of his whole generation too because um, of course he was you know at that because he's born in 57 so he okay so he wasn't quite that um, well his schooling was interrupted let's say or he came back to it and kind of couldn't take it seriously in 78 when he came so he left um, so what he did was he sidestepped the 80s in China which is a period that's like very much romanticized now as a moment of, there was a, a dialectic of enlightenment let's say people sort of reading things that were being translated every month and artists working their way through concepts and debating you know is abstraction good no is you know it's it's really kind of like the the a period that a lot of us who are interested in how contemporary art evolved in china are very very interested in he he was gone already he and he instead was like walking through moma looking at works by these people um, and I think that, I mean, I think that was something that we both talked about in relation to his architecture is this kind of immediacy of, you know, concepts just kind of internalized, maybe without a long process of education leading up to them, but that not in any way that um, lessens his understanding of them. Um, there's nothing he hates more than uh, the academy. Even, I think he hates it even more than he hates the Communist Party. <laughs> Except this academy. Not this academy. I mean, the, the, the you know, the academia, let's say. Yeah, because I think it, 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 everyone who's worked with him does talk about the speed with which he works as well, a very decisive eye on... Does he work... Is that... I mean, that goes for architecture as well as art. Is that right? I mean, you, you spoke about the quickness, you and I also spoke to someone in his office who said, actually, the speed with which he will make a decision and hold to a decision 
is quite phenomenal. That was something that was, has been noted for how he works. Yes, I, I mean, I, what's my comparison? I didn't work with other, so maybe this is how artists, no, I worked with other artists that's different and um, uh, I think this is this is remarkable and um, uh, he also has a very uh, extremely good eye. No? I mean, he sees if something, uh, he, I, mean, I, I mean, really good eye, seeing differences of angles and proportions and knowing distances, almost like a little bit absolute eye. And that's super interesting. But that was something I thought was interesting that you said when you talked about him making the wall taller. And you talked about, um, you know, he likes kind of, you know, he, he doesn't do nuance. And I thought that was interesting because when you walk around those buildings in Beijing, which don't come across at all, uh, in, in Chachangai, which don't come across at all, I think, in the photography, what struck me was actually absolutely that it's that kind of you know absolute judgment about the proportion of how big something might be and there's something quite uncanny about lots of those spaces you can't quite work out how big they are relative to you they're slightly they're slightly different in proportion to the proportion that you might expect them to be and and that gives them incredible sculptural power so so i mean in some ways i'd kind of you know, certainly on the evidence of those things i'd sort of disagree i think i think it's you know i mean i it, you know, there's this story. I mean, so he 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 talks about his one architectural epiphany moment is buying this book on Wittgenstein, yeah. Which again, I mean, who knows? That's one myth that he puts out, you know. But you know, there's the, and then there's and then within it, there's this myth of Wittgenstein lying on the ceiling, you know, lying on the floor, looking at the ceiling, going, you know, this ceiling needs to be four centimeters higher, um, and getting them to take the entire sort of upper story of the building down to do it. But but in some ways, that that level of precision feels like it exists within those buildings. Although they're, in, in, in other ways, very crudely made, they're, they're absolutely precise, you know, in that way, um, in a way that I found really startling mm. when I was in them. And it sort of echoes a conversation I had with him. I asked him about level of control, because he, he notoriously says he doesn't go onto a building site. Um, and the, the studio was said to have been designed in an afternoon, drawn, handed over. You know these myths come about. Um, so at one level, he said he hadn't. He he's very strong in holding control on the concept, and then hands it over to be made. But then was also incredibly. Con and he said, you know, and then I hand and give it over. And then he sort of said, but I also become incredibly controlling about each detail. So it was a kind of there was a conflict to me in what he was saying, in that actually it felt as though that control was quite strongly through it, even though he did hand across to a maker. I don't know if that's an evidence. Is that something that you see, or is? I, I mean, I think um, it's similar to how he makes much of his art, oh. right? And of course, we're like long past debates about the hand. Um, what he, 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 it's an art of decision making, right? Mm -hmm. He's kind of and of and ultimately, actually, of connoisseurship, um, of and and actually of being able to twist sort of existing bodies of knowledge and practice in sort of unexpected directions by saying, hey, you know, why don't you make a cube of wood that has bumps on it, right? Or so just to, to useless things, I suppose. But, um, you know, he can only kind of get the craftsmen or the builders, whoever, to kind of 
implement his will because he's also their best judge. I mean, he, he notices, you know, when things are off. And that also all goes back to the period in the early 90s when he first came back and the antique markets were completely open and flooded. And, you know, you could have basically a 30 years at Sotheby's or Christie's kind of in in three years of kind of really prowling the uh, the various auction markets in town and, and just, you know, just this, like, deep, deep familiarity with the whole many parts of the material tradition. Um, I think that's, I mean, I think New York for him was, was very much about a conceptual awakening, um, a humanistic awakening, and I think that the 90s in China were, are, were where he's what grounded him materially. Did you have reflections on hearing what Daniel had talked about, about material culture, did it make echo with you, you know, the relationship between art and architecture that he drew with material culture? I mean, I, I you think can I, say I, no. I, 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 <laughs> I agree with like all, all, quite a lot of, of what of what Daniel wrote in his essay. Um, it's sort of funny because that that first piece you showed is actually not even an Iowa piece. It's a map office. piece. Yes, it's a map office piece. Yeah. Or another yeah. architect or architectural collective that have had dealings with him. So which which bits didn't you agree with? Um, Sorry, it's clear. Uh, no, spot, I feel like it? I'm on the spot. Um, I'll think of something. Okay. <laughs> one, one, of the thing, one of the things that I was kind of interested in in hearing a bit about from Simon was, and one of the things that you understand when you're in China looking at those buildings is, you know, in a way they're very <coughs> uh, they're very basic construction. So you know, there's no insulation. You can let the slab go from inside to outside. You know, you, I mean, the, the, I, one one of the things that I realized when I was walking around, I kept thinking, wow, why do these spaces look so incredible? And I realized it's because there's no kit. You know, you don't. There's no alarms. There's no conduits. There's no electrical pieces. There's nothing because none of that kind of exists in those spaces. And uh, um, and and I wondered what it was like then working with him in a context where you're having to deal with kind of building code. You never you know, when we when we arrived in China, he was it was just at this moment where like we were being asked to use insulation and that we were being asked to do to to, to kind of work in a different way um, to the way that those buildings were made. And I and I wondered what that meant when you were working in the States or somewhere. Well I, I suppose my question is how it's much how much did, was he interested and did it change the way he thought about the making of spaces that they, that suddenly <coughs> this kind of interior exterior translations that happened. In I, th I think maybe that's the the difference uh, I see in his relationship to art and to to architecture that he's never interested totally in architecture. Or he would yeah. say anyway, I'm not interested in architecture and also. And um, but he's always interested in something of it, and then for the rest he really doesn't care, and he know he not, yeah. doesn't go on any construction site and um, so I mean all that these video cameras then come later no I mean mm. maybe that's one of the reasons also he he liked to work with us because he hoped that we as Swiss architects would hide all that stuff no <laughs> so because I mean that's also reality that he doesn't care about many things and then um, I mean, it's it's funny to see how rotten many of these buildings are already when finished. Now, with the, the the then you have to exchange the the, the wooden uh, fence after three years, and then you have to uh, change it. And also, I mean, or the the bricks because uh, because uh, this detail 
uh, with just the iron bar it doesn't really work after 10 years so it's it's uh, also a lot of it is very unprofessional but I think that's why why it's so good mm. you know? yes. and uh, on the other hand I mean he built his studio if then people come and say I like it so much I want to have the same and he says yes it takes me half a half a day to give you the same with instructions uh, so here it is I mean it's it's for free it's for I mean all his friends live in in, in these houses no so it's filled with his crowd if they have the same insulation problems and they're all cold in their buildings <laughs> and yeah so then I think it's also it's also it's also just okay it's we should also I mean um, note that Ordos was never built and that Jinhua is basically a ruin at this point, right? I mean, it's, it's, I don't, and it's interesting. I mean, actually, Taochangdi is intact. I mean, it was at least last month when I was still in Beijing. Mm -hmm. um, almost all of, the, actually all of those, you know, complexes on your map. But the, the afterlives of these things are so interesting, especially, I mean, in a place like Taochangdi where um, the land use rights are so insecure. So anyone that lives in one of those places essentially paid 20 years of rent up front and they're already halfway through their you know their ownership so I don't know at that point is it an ownership or a tenancy but um, and it of course could could be gone at any time but it looks like that won't happen quite in that way um, and and I mean Shanghai is the kind of er example of that right to build this giant giant thing at the behest of the government that uh, or of a particular individual in the government that's then you know flew too close to the sun and it's gone um, a few months later. Well, I guess, I guess that's the point I was getting at. You know, that in a way, part of the quality of these things in China is their provisionality. Mm. You know, that, that, yeah, they're kind of 20-year objects, you know, maybe, or five-year objects, maybe. I mean, who knows what, you know, how long they'll be there. And in a way, it's very, it's very interesting in relation to the, to the house for the mega-rich collector, where, you know, suddenly you see these kind of lined interiors and, you know, and, and it becomes a... It, you know, it becomes a different kind of architectural expression and a, and a different sense of what architecture is for and, and is. So, and, and that, you know, that, that for me is, is sort of fascinating. That he's also, also that he's engaged in both of those aspects of what architecture might be kind of simultaneously. You know. and, and I just, I mean, if I, if I sound critical, I, I just want to say, if you look at what is built, what gets built in, in uh, Beijing, um, the Weiwei's buildings yeah, they're, they're are by far the best, and are by far <laughs> those who no. I, by, and I'm not talking about uh, about technical uh, uh, technical stuff only. I'm, I'm talking about the spaces they produce, mm. the social spaces they produce. Of course, it helps if it's uh, people of the same gang or of the same uh, occupying them, but. Um, uh, so it's, uh, I think, uh, maybe, if I say unprofessional, it's maybe the best answer to the question how to live uh, in these areas, because it's not done by a professional architect who is overtrained and thinks that now, because of this and that, I have to um uh, like lose all these qualities all these special qualities no and i mean we're we're at a completely different moment for Weiwei right now where he's this kind of global <coughs> figure of global import right but when the real work was being done and it sounds like the period a lot of us keep coming back to let's say circa 04 when he had his first you know major solo show or when when he met simon hartman 
um, you know, through like let's say 2010 or so, there was this really key period where um, China's global ambitions were completely on the table. You know, around the city in Beijing, you had the Coal House Project, you had the Herzog Project, you had the Foster Airport, you had the Andrew Theater. Um, and that was, and, and, and you didn't quite have social media in the same way that we have them now. And so his house and the physical space of the house kind of, and, and actually the online vehicle of his long form blog with sort of pictures that he would meticulously take and download and upload. Um, and in fact, something as simple as the table in the center of that living room where whatever had been sent to him, you know, he would kind of then make some kind of selection and everyone was sending him all kinds of things. And the table became like a teachable moment, right? I mean, it was mm -hmm. that which at which we might direct our interest in this extremely analog, but somehow also extremely lyrical and, and, and powerful way. And I mean, that that's you know that's when architecture becomes poetry. Have you seen his relationship with architecture change? I mean, you know, in what he said about it, how he relates to it. There was the thing where he you know, spoke about how architecture being subverted by the regime and sort of saying, you know, being subverted, I guess, and, you know, how he sees, I mean, he seems to embrace architecture at one level, but also be critical of it as a profession, as you say. Well, I'll just, one more little thing. That's exactly, that's very, very interesting, because if we look at the story of his radicalization, uh, or his public radicalization, it actually all begins with the Guardian article uh, that was written a year to the day before the Olympics opened. And August 8th, 2007, uh, when there was this kind of three-day sort of training campaign with no cars on the road and kind of trying to test the systems. And that's the moment at which he said, I will never go uh, to the Olympic Stadium, even if they invite me. You know, I hate that it's become, you know, what was an agora for the people has become a vehicle of propaganda. I remember getting emails when that first ran, just people saying, is he going to be all right? Or, I mean, that was the first time anyone asked that about him. And the Sichuan earthquake and you know, Wang Jia and all the stuff, that, that all came later. So it's, it's interesting that, yeah, his first kind of super public political moment was actually about architecture. Have you seen, Simon, his relationship change with architecture in the time you've worked with him? No, no. I was just, I mean, I, I agree that um, you both talked about seriality also, no? I agree that in a lot of his works, there is a first, um, like important thing, and then variations of it. And um, it's clear that the his studio space um, was like the, the the original, and then on these these brick things. That's I mean that's then uh, what comes after, but. I don't see a change. I mean, this was 1999, if you want to, so in that, in the architecture field. And if I say now, just his, just his architecture, no? Um, because, I mean, that's also, uh, if, if you collaborate, no, I think that these, these uh, little objects we do together, they, in the end, they don't fit in anyone's, no, drawer like that. But if I look at this, these brick buildings, which I really like a lot, they have a very clear um, first. Uh, maybe there are two to uh, for building for housing and the, the normal um, and the normal exhibition spaces. It's his studio. That's 1999, and since then, copies. 
And then I would say, nevertheless, the three shadows were the first time he tried to do more. He tried to get the brick stuff to architecture with patterns. Uh, my, my, Maile, maybe. For Maile is the first, yeah. The, the yeah. yeah, I mean, whatever, you know, you see these bricks and you see these holes and, and uh, pitched roofs. And so that's where he tried to uh, somehow get it more uh, fancy, you know, as architecture. And this was a sidetrack, which also remained a sidetrack, you know, but he continued to produce... Yeah, actually less interesting in lots of ways. A lesson? I think it's less interesting in lots of ways. I'm sure you think that, but I uh, also think that that's what I what no. But I think uh, um, uh, the 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 point is that should he just only do one thing and repeat that his whole life? I, I'm I'm happy that he. I would say if there is a real architectural ex, uh, ambition of himself, it shows in that second step that he tried to get over just the simple box mm -hmm. and how good that is then is you know that's like uh, a question but uh, i think it's very interesting and and i there i would say i see a first thing and then a second step yeah. to try out new things there's also yeah. all this other work that i mean i mean in, you know like, like the thing about meeting foster you know he does that amazing series of photographs photographing the beijing yeah. airport yeah. as it as it's being developed so there's this there's this interest in another kind of interest in architecture. I mean, actually, interest, uh, you know, again, like his, his photographs of the stadium and his photographs of the airport are all about the process of making them. You know, you don't get, you don't get finished images of them as far as I can remember, maybe you do, but, but, but what they're really about are these kind of, they're, they're somewhere between a kind of ruin and a construction, you know, they sort of, so, so, there's there's another interest in architecture that's going on in the, in this other stuff that's happening in the city, so yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I've I've spoken about it and written about this work as a kind of resistance to that, but he's also open to it and he and he's out there looking at that stuff as well with a very interesting eye. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.